Hello, welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Daniel Kane. We are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims up Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It's published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're excited to be joined by Casey Burgett and Matt Glassman. Casey is the director of the Legislative Affairs Program and an assistant editor at George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management. And Matt is a senior fellow at Georgetown University's Government Affairs Institute. For our winter 2021 issue, Casey and Matt wrote a fascinating essay titled Politics After Trump. In their piece, they write that while the Trump era seems to many observers to have been an incredibly disruptive one, all presidencies, in fact, are disruptive by nature. Presidents seek to reshape American life by achieving durable changes in our politics and policy, potentially reversing or undoing the actions of their predecessors. Like previous presidents, Trump's time in office was influenced by the institutional context of the powerful modern presidency and political polarization. His legacy, they write, will ultimately depend on how political actors and the public come to understand his presidency and how he left office. Casey and Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having having us. us. You bet. So guys, to start off with, we obviously know that a lot of people in Washington are focusing on the Biden administration, how he's going to address the pandemic and all the crises that we're facing right now. But we kind of want to, we think it's important to look back at the Trump era as you do in your piece and kind of figure out what are the lasting effects of his time in, in office? In the start to your essay, you note that there's kind of three conventional wisdoms that have emerged about Trump's time as president. The first being that he was sort of an aberration, a weak leader, that he only had a modest impact on our politics. Or the second one, that he was actually a transformative president who you know, was a really big deal, expanded the power of the executive branch. Or a third, that he was a symptom of larger forces in our politics, such as globalization, nationalism, polarization. And so that he himself was just kind of a symptom of these forces. So, you know, these, these appear to be different kind of conventional wisdoms, but you guys write that each of them kind of strikes at the truth in their own way. So, Casey, I'll start with you and then Matt, feel free to jump in. Could you kind of walk us through these three views that have emerged of what is the legacy of Trump and then why they each kind of speak to the truth in its own way? It's so interesting to do this only a few weeks after he's left office and then also an insurrection in between those two things. So those contingent sure. events matter are that kind of where we leave off of the piece is like, this ultimately isn't known yet, but then you throw in a capital storming and then you're like, ah, we kind of do know a little bit more now. <laughs> and so people responding to him has, has been, this is like all, as we felt throughout this whole process, like this is on an incredible speed here that we're getting answered to these questions that we thought was going to be, or at least historically have taken years to get with something like this. Right. But Trump, the, the three views of like, Trump is an aberration. Obviously, we, we know aspects of him that are the aberration that are soon to be or already of having been forgotten of people just being like, that's Trump being Trump. There's not going to be someone like him. Let's just move on from that. And we felt a little of that just even with the deplatforming of Trump, right? Even in the weeks since then, it's just we've taken like a deep breath and it's kind of calmer and quieter. And now folks are like, OK, maybe that was just kind of the aberration effect of like once he's gone, he will be gone. But at the same time, he was absolutely transformative, right? The voices that we're hearing from now are, especially on the Republican side or exclusively on the Republican side, are the loudest Trump-like voices, right? The Cruises and the Hawleys, they're they're having his message. So he's transformative in the fact of what we're talking about, how it riles up certain proportions of the base. And that's the message is likely to be extended by Trump-like figures in maybe a more professionally, politically savvy sense. But probably the the one that I think Matt and I most subscribe to is the third view, right? That if it wasn't Trump now, it was going to be someone like Trump sooner than later. 
We've seen this overseas. We've seen this like this authoritarian strongman types take over in, in different governing contexts. And it was just a matter of time that someone famous, rich, white, all at the same time was likely to take over the American scene too in the way that Trump did. So he's just the player of now that kind of fit into these longer term trends. And this was our time that we got the Trump-like figure in the American context. Yeah, and I think that, you know, one thing you see reflected in these views is how different political actors sort of take these views and then input them to their strategy. You know, whether he believes it or not, Biden is certainly subscribing to the first view, right, where this is an, you know, an aberration of four years, and it's something we can literally box off and move on from going forward, and that you can sort of reset to the politics of 2015 or 2014, and that we can just sort of pick up the pieces from there. That's clearly what Biden is projecting. His entire campaign, you know, had the phrase return to normalcy on it. I don't see that. And I don't see that as fundamentally possible because of the nature of the presidency. It's true that Biden can go back and behave like previous presidents. I mean, he can behave exactly like Obama or, or Bush 43 and sort of the ways we think of sort of as a very normal sort of presidential behavior in the modern era. And even if he does that, and even every future president does that, that doesn't sort of mitigate how the impacts of Trumpism have altered both the presidency and the political system. You can't simply sort of reset the clock on the presidency, the nature of the presidency, its disruptive force is sort of a creative destruction, and then it rearranges the pieces. And it's not the case where you just sort of get the office and now you can say, turn back the clock. Trump is going to have rearranged for good or bad, better or worse, positive for his party, positive for him or negative for both of them, the institutions of the office, the party system, the political parties themselves, and the policy landscape. And that's sort of just true. The presidency, as we say, is a blunt instrument. It's not like Congress or the courts. You have to be active in the presidency. You can't sit and watch in the presidency. And also, it doesn't turn over sort of like slowly. You know, I think of the Congress or the courts. In some ways, they're like balls of clay. You add a little from one side and you take a little from the other side. The presidency changes fundamentally every four years. And, you know, in some ways, this was the founders' fear of the presidency, right? The reason the monarchy sort of held their respect even after they knew they were no longer going to have a monarchy was that monarchy means stability. And they were hoping in their executive to find some stability after sort of the legislative struggles of the 1780s. But, you know, in the system they built, right, they have, they know, they know, Hamilton knows at the time, man, if we change people every four years, we're going to have a lot of men in this office who are going to be looking to strike out and strike blows to prove their sort of mettle and their sort of leadership and their ability and their power. That's both dangerous and sort of the dynamism that can drive, you know, the office. But it's certainly a reality. But this is an office that has a blunt force to affect politics. That sort of leads kind of very naturally into the next question, which is that you guys draw a parallel between the three interpretations of the Trump administration and sort of three qualities of the modern presidency as it exists. So you say that it's, first of all, inherently disruptive, that it's greatly affected by the institutional context in which the president takes office, and that contingency matters, right? Which is to say that the way that people interpret or make sense of or create meaning around the presidency ultimately matters a great deal in terms of the legacy of the president. So Matt, maybe we could start with you on this one. And we're going to follow the essay. So we're going to dive into all of these in greater depth. But could you maybe give us a sort of brief outline of those three qualities of the presidency, what they mean in practice? I mean, I think I did describe a little bit about sort of Mm -hmm. the presidency is inherently disruptive. Presidents are you know, our system is a separated system with lots of actors and lots of veto players, and no one can dominate the system. But the president is, as an individual, more important than any other individual in the system. And the fact that he represents an entire branch of the system with a unity of mind, and that unity of mind can change every four years entirely and completely, 
means that the presidency is going to have the capacity to be disruptive more than any of the other branches simply by its nature. And second, that the people who occupy the office are going to want to be disruptive. Again, this was sort of the insight of the founders. Presidents are going to want to show off their capacity and ability to lead and be powerful, often by repudiating what came before them. And that's the most powerful way to sort of use the office as this blunt force is to sort of say everything before me, that was wrong. I'm going a different direction. And even just the desire to show that off. And this is not sort of something inherent of a president in a republic. We've known this for for centuries and, and, and millenniums about monarchs, right? Part of the power of a monarch was the ability to sort of strike out bluntly. And so that's the first. The second we say is that, you know, the presidency always exists in context. And in this particular context, the modern presidency is very different than the 19th century presidency. And this is one thing that I think was difficult for Trump, is that a 19th century president may have been more of what Trump wanted to fit into, not a policy leader, not someone there who was going to try and aggressively lead Congress, but more of a passive administrator. And that's just not possible right now. Congress has put into the presidency so much statutory authority that the expectation, both from the legislature itself and certainly from the public, is that the president is going to be a policy and political leader. And I think you saw during COVID so disastrous as well as for Trump, and that it really didn't really fit his mold, and that he just didn't have sort of any capacity to take on either type of those leaderships. And then most importantly, I think at the end, we, we talk about this third idea of contingency. And that's the idea that politics is not just about things that happen, but how those things are understood. Two examples I always use are impeachments and elections. In impeachment, the first time Trump was impeached, we all knew what the outcome was. No one was fighting over whether he's going to be removed from office. It was clear as day by the start of the trial that he was not going to be removed from office. Nevertheless, there was a tremendous fight. Okay, and the fight was not whether to remove him. It was how should we understand this impeachment? Okay, was this a corrupt president who was being sort of propped up by a political party that refused to abandon a sort of nakedly unfit man for office, or was this a partisan witch hunt by a bunch of people who never agreed with this president and never saw him as legitimate, trying to drag him out of office? And those understandings shape not just future elections, which of course everyone sort of thinks of first, but also how other political actors set up their future goals. Are you going to run against Trump? Right? Are you going to stand up to him on policy? Right? Are you going to support him going forward? And all these things matter to politics. And of course, I'll stop there. But you know, there's plenty of other examples of how sort of how you understand political action is important as the action itself. And so, to take that first fact about the presidency we're talking about with presidents being disruptive, uh, Matt, you already quoted Hamilton, I think, earlier. But we're gonna let me read the full quote here. This is from uh, Federalist Number Seventy Two. The president comes into office, quote, to reverse and undo what has been done by a predecessor is very often considered by a successor as the best proof he can give of his own capacity and desert. This idea that a president feels compelled to do this because it shows that he's being successful and that he has the capacity to be a good leader. You guys mentioned in your essay that there's some leaders maybe who are viewed as doing a good job of this, maybe an FDR or Reagan, others not so much like a Buchanan or a Carter, but that even if the presidency is viewed as failing, it still can be disruptive. It still has an effect on the executive branch and how it's viewed. Maybe Casey, could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, it- the word disruptive, especially following the, the Trump era, has this negative connotation, right, that it's an upending of the entire system. But disruptive can be very good and, and incredibly necessary, especially if you agree with the actions that he's taking. Like, if you're mad about the way the, the policy is being carried out or not at all, you want disruption. That's what you vote for. And so, especially in times when you, we've only had a few of them, but when an incumbent is defeated after a first term, repudiation is like the mandate. It's the one thing that we take away from from the election itself, right? So it's an easy path to say, Biden coming in saying, I'm just not going to be like that guy. And then when voters agree with you, 
you carry out all the the messages that you brought in, especially through executive actions where you don't have to do anything through Congress, where I'm going to undo everything he did, just like I promised you. And the fact that more people voted for me shows that more people don't like that guy. So it's an easy way to show not only that that you are capable of the office, but it is that you are carrying through on your promises, that you are repudiating the person you just defeated. It's just that the current president, given the fact that we govern almost unilaterally through executive order from the, the president right now, it's the only way he can show his capacity to do that. And that's why it's such a, he has 49 pins on day one of his administration with those executive orders. And there's the whole gambit of showing the public facing signage of these things. And even we saw reporters get wrong that Biden was getting credit for legislative actions on day one in signing these executive orders, which of course they are not legislative exactions. They're almost by definition, not legislative actions. They are just repudiating and all of them, almost all of them were the reversal of what Trump did over his four years. And that's the live by the sword, die by the sword of executive orders, where if you take out an incumbent or you, you switch parties, or even if you are the next iteration of your current party, you can reverse actions on day one, just as fast as they put them in through executive orders throughout that presidency. So disruptive is good, especially when on you, you run on the fact that you are going to disrupt everything that he just did. And I can do this on day one from everything ranging from immigration to vaccines to rejoining the WHO and the Paris Climate Accords, all without Congress ever taking a vote. So it's the easiest, most efficient way to show your, your capability on day one. So in addition to that, there's you guys kind of spell out three ways in which that disruptive quality of the presidency manifests itself. So you have the governing style, the willingness to ignore institutional norms, and the effect on the party system. And you guys write that the governing style that President Trump adopted probably will not ultimately sort of stick around and define future presidencies. It was too erratic, too combative, and it, it ultimately sort of just it failed, both to secure you know, policy objectives, deliver on campaign promises, and ultimately, right, he lost in 2020. But you do note that the norm breaking and the impact on political parties, the relationship between the presidency and the parties could be more trend setting. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how Trump's legacy might shape those two kinds of disruptive qualities of the presidency moving forward. Yeah, I mean, Matt, take this for sure. But I just want to say before this. He deleted so many of my paragraphs of things that I just wanted to (laughs) itemize of of norm breaking, because I think they all matter. And we from space constraints or just not wanting to throw in a 40 page list of norm breaking. (laughs) We only concentrated on the big ones. Even that in itself is is kind of where we're at with the the governing style. Right. I just I wanted we had so many iterations of like, well, we can't leave this out or he snubbed this ambassador or just like the norm breaking. And that ultimately might be kind of the lasting takeaway is that if you just flood the zone with disruptions, then people are forced to only take on a few. And so I just wanted to make sure that I wanted to say that because of how many things we had to delete of just the norm breakings throughout the, the itemized listing. I think a couple of things happened with the governing style. One is that I think certainly by the end of Trump's term, but probably as early as fall 2017, I think most of the elite actors in Washington on both sides of the aisle had come to see Trump's style as counterproductive. Certainly Republicans on the Hill have become just aghast at having him sort of shoot from the hip on Twitter and blow up all their agenda setting plans and tell them the things they did yesterday were bad and the things they should do tomorrow are good, only to come back two days later and say the same thing over again. And I'm pretty sure that most people had decided among elite actors who are going to be taking these sorts of cues about these norms 
that, you know, this sort of, again, shoot from the hip style where you're just sort of out there ad-libbing on Twitter was not advancing policy agendas. And then, of course, losing the election sort of cements that. If it can't influence policy and it can't win elections, that's sort of the evolutionary way politicians discard things they've been trying. It has to do one or the other, and hopefully both. But if it doesn't do either, it's sort of just over for that sort of technique. And that doesn't mean that in the big picture, it's right or wrong. But the lesson people are going to learn from this is Trump never got the policies he wanted out of Congress, and he didn't win re-election. So something he was doing is wrong. And the thing everyone can so easily say he did wrong was that he just shot his mouth off too much when he didn't need to unnecessarily and cost himself in the public sphere. I mean, you had everyone from sort of like very sort of conservative voters right up to Mitch McConnell saying, man, I just wish he would stop tweeting so much. Right. Right. And I think that is going to be sort of the governing lesson. And, and this will be reinforced, of course, by Biden, who had no intention of ever tweeting that much, you know, or being that way, but is going to reinforce this because he's going to succeed on some policies and he's going to do it in an old fashioned style. Now, the norm breaking, I think, fits much better into a more complicated analysis because a lot of the norms Trump was breaking were sort of just outrageous, right? Like, what is this guy doing? But a lot of them also fit into a context of the last 20, really the last 100 years, which is an accumulation of power by the president. And and we make a lot of this about the post 9-11 accumulation of power of the presidency, starting with Bush 43 and continuing Obama and Trump. And there is sort of a straight line there. And, you know, this is to say that Donald Trump did not invent the idea of resisting congressional subpoenas. He did not invent the idea of stretching the meaning of appropriations bills, but he certainly did take all those things to 11. And the issue here that comes up is that the person who could most repudiate those right now is also the person who stands to benefit the most from not repudiating those. And that is Joe Biden one and the Democratic Party's policy initiatives in the next two years, too. And so there's a lot of cross-cutting pressures here. And my suspicion is that Biden will sort of sign the reform bills about all these things if he has to, but is going to strongly resist doing so and is not going to be happy about it and is not going to make an agenda item that he is going to push on people who don't want it, reforming the Vacancy Reform Act, right? Or tightening the screws on congressional subpoenas over the executive branch. He may be boxed into doing those things, but he will do them kicking and screaming. And this has sort of been the pattern post 9-11 is that Bush sort of accumulates all these powers statutorily and sort of through executive initiative. Obama says, ah, that guy was bad, bring me in, then repudiates it sort of rhetorically, but doesn't want to give back the power, right? Trump does the same thing. Obama was bad. He shouldn't have done this. He shouldn't have that, but he's not going to hand back the power. And I suspect Biden will be at least at a, you know, the level he wants to do the same thing. Now, he may be forced into it. If you can get a supermajority in Congress, they'll just tie his hands on it. But I, I think that we're going to see a lot of these norms, particularly in the policy realm, not about sort of personal corruption, because I do think the norms about sort of personal corruption will be reset. I don't think anyone is going to say, I'm not showing you my taxes. I think all the presidential candidates are going to show everyone their tax returns, in part because I think there's going to be good politics in that for people to do that. But in terms of the presidential power norms, which I think are the really important ones here, I see more continuity than disruption here from Biden. You'll get rhetorical disruption, I think, but not, not actual sort of policy disruption on that. Who loses in that is Congress, of course. Quick follow-up, too. Then there's also the question of the president's relationship to his party as well. And Trump was obviously like really disruptive in a number of ways, some of them really interesting, like the working class, multi-ethnic sort of coalition that a lot of people were talking about coming out of 2020 was interesting. And I think largely to the credit of Trump and the people around him. At the same time, he was a profoundly disruptive force within the party infrastructure. And I think a lot of people on the right right now are sort of worried about what party organization and structure looks like post-Trump. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit 
either of you to sort of that general question. I think that's one of the things that all of us are watching most publicly right now. I mean, you see people trying to take up that mantle of being first to the the post of keeping the the populist mantle that Trump built and, and solidified with Cruz and Hawley and objecting folks that know better, one, and then two, are so willing to do it publicly is just a huge signal that they want to take over that to be known as that bridge between the Trump era that we are all wondering, is it specific to Trump himself? Or is it this coalition that is it can be extended and even professionalized politically to, to be a more effective force? Because my main takeaway from the Trump era is, especially on the Democratic side, is like he was a dodge bullet politically and legislatively, right? Like if he were professional, if he were had the ability to concentrate or just be quiet for a while, then it would have been much harder to roll him legislatively on certain issues and then beat him for for re-election. I mean, given the fact that there was a global pandemic, economic upheavals, racial strife, all of this, and it was still extremely close of an historically unpopular president. So we're all wondering where the Republican Party goes with itself and then how well they're able to coalesce around a candidate that can speak to those both of those bases if and when Trump is not at the top of the ballot, because the one time he wasn't in 2018, it was a huge, huge way for the Democrats to, to take over. So we're watching of how much is this unique to Trump when he's not on the ballot. And I think that that's what we're, Senate Republicans especially are having that backs and forth right now. But folks like Cruz and Hawley and others are, are betting that this is a coalition that can be activated with the message and not necessarily dependent on the messenger. Yeah, I think that if you're, say you are sort of a, a right nationalist, a right populist, and you sort of t- take away the balance sheet of the last four years, I think you're disappointed on policy, tremendously disappointed on policy. Trumpism, the 2016 set of ideas, really did not get enacted. We never got, you know, at the legislative level, tariffs or other trade restrictions. We didn't get, you know, a wall in any real sense. We never got the big infrastructure package. What you did get was you got tax cuts and business deregulation and conservative judges and the kinds of things Republicans like. The way I see policy in the Trump era is that he handed over agenda setting the Republicans and basically policy to them, and they sort of turned a blind eye to his personal corruption and sort of gave him sort of puffing credit. Now, if you are a right nationalist or right populist and you're looking at this and you're trying to see going forward, I think you have a little more optimism than you might over the actual success of the policy. Certainly, the 2020 election showed that there is a way for Republicans to compete for working class votes of non-white voters in particular along this sort of populist message. And you can see the strands of this fight emerging. And if you compare it to, say, the, the right populist parties of Europe, the big piece missing, of course, is that most of those parties have sort of gotten over the top in terms of popularity by doing things like supporting national health care. And you can kind of see the strands of that coming from Hawley or maybe Lee or Rubio, where there is this big divergence between sort of the traditional business conservatives in the GOP, the people fixated on social conservatism, and then these new right populists, right, who are, who are looking to sort of seriously mesh liberal economics with sort of social conservatism. And, and that's a fight that we're watching happen every day. And I agree with Casey that part of this is how much was Trump responsible for this? Are the business conservatives going to come back in and win the nomination next time and everything will just follow them? Or are we actually going to have a really knockdown, drag out fight here between these various forces? I have no doubt that there are sort of opportunists all over this. Plenty of people who, for whatever reason, if they saw that they could sort of go after national health care or things like that on the right to win votes, they would do it. And those, you know, those shapes may be shifting. And to the degree they are, 
a lot of it is going to depend on how people get our understanding of the Trump presidency and the lame duck in particular into order. I mean, I think this is sort of the big picture takeaway here is we were writing this after the election, but really right after the election. And Trump was contesting the election, but it still wasn't clear whether this was just sort of like, you know, crybaby contesting or actually sort of trying to set up the future or if he was actually groping around to stay in power. And I think when we wrote it, we were really thinking about him contesting the election as political strategy mm-hmm. to sort of come off as that Andrew Jackson style cheated mm-hmm. loser who was going to storm back in in four years. Now, in the context of the resulting sort of insurrection and Trump sort of fighting the bitter end, even in private and everything that's coming out now, it really looks like more that he was actually kind of groping around to stay in power. And that failed, of course. But that does put sort of a cast a different lens on it. In any case, though, you do have this sort of Republican Party afterwards that is it's not really clear what direction you're heading. If you see Senator Portman announced today he wasn't running for reelection. One thing that Trump certainly has been successful at is purging out a lot of the traditional business oriented conservatives and bringing in to the elite and the congressional side, many more sort of populist figures for every Portman you take out and every sort of Bobert you put in to the system, sort of the, the plate starts to tip a little further the other direction within the party. Ultimately, you have to win elections, though. And if you purge your party and lose multiple presidential elections in a row, then things start to go the other direction pretty quickly. So ultimately, you have to win for any of this to be solidified. But you know what that attempt at winning looks like is still up in the air. Okay, so we've talked about in terms of the three facts about the presidency that we talked about at the beginning of the conversation. We've mentioned the presidencies are disruptive. Second, that you know they're affected by the institutional context of a powerful president and polarization. And now let's talk about the third one, which is the fact that contingency events matter, or contingency matters. And so you've got a quote in your piece where you write, President Trump's legacy will thus depend on how political actors and the public come to understand his candidacy, his presidency, the 2020 election, and the terms upon which he leaves office. And then you write that, you know, Trump and then Biden will be kind of the two people that will probably have the most impact on how we view Trump's legacy. So let's first start with Trump, and then we'll talk about Biden. Obviously, you guys mentioned that you wrote your piece before the insurrection, and now we have this second impeachment trial coming up. How much do you guys think that'll affect in terms of the impeachment and how we view the riot, how that'll affect how people view Trump going forward? I guess, Casey, maybe you'll start here. Sure. We, we're already starting to see huge impacts of this. And this is contingent people, actors taking action in response to Trump, but independent of Trump, where he doesn't have his hand on the lever in a way that he did. Like Twitter deplatforming him is a huge deal if he wants to stay involved in, in politics. And especially if he wants to keep even just for his own sake and his own brand, his name floated in circles to be an active participant in politics, to affect what the Trump side of the wing is talking about or how to view things. Everyone wants to know his opinion. And now it's quieter, right? He's going to have to call in to shows and people are going to have them. But even then, the insurrection is a stain that Matt and I, there's no way we could have ever even anticipated something like that. We struggled with where to cut it off and, and how to be contingent and knowing all of the lasting implications and norm breaking that he did. But this one is House of Cards plus V plus every show that you can imagine directly tied to Trump in both the public sphere. All of it is so directly tied to him. And all of these contingent events are just is staining him in a way that I don't know that we've ever could have thought possible given the Tupperware Don, right? Like nothing, Teflon Don, nothing impacted his reputation. But this one seemed like it did. Not only in the fact that what people have to defend in his name now, there'll be a formal trial and potential for conviction where someone like McConnell is floating the fact that he might vote to convict, which is a huge change that 30 days ago, I would have lost a ton of money saying that that was never going to be an option. 
And then business-wise too, where businesses, whether it's a Holly's book publisher or PAC corporations are saying they are literally bad for business now. That the Republicans, especially the ones directly tied to the, the challenge of the election or supporting Trump blindly, is, are literally bad for our bottom line. And that is a contingent event that I think will shift the, the consideration of what is acceptable now? How much do we want to be tied to him? Can we repudiate him as being a part of our own party? Do we even want to be associated with this as a Republican party? And can we let him go start the Patriot Party, the MAGA party to, to formally separate this from all of us? So, and this is all this all happened in what three weeks now, and that was following four years of just craziness anyway. So I hesitate to make any prediction, but at some point, some of this is going to ha- start having impacts, and it seems like it really has to a degree that we couldn't have anticipated just a few short weeks ago. I don't think there's much doubt that the insurrection was bad for Trump's future, and you know it's funny because if if you plotted out everything you want to think about Trump going forward before the 2020 election. I think a significant portion of that is going to be sort of set aside. And a lot of Trump's legacy is going to be about this lame doc. And he set out with, I think, a goal to contest the election, or at least not concede and build a narrative of a corrupt election defeating him so that he could try and move forward politically in 22 and 24. And I think that that building into the insurrection ultimately is going to backfire on him. I don't think the story coming out of this in two or four, eight or 50 years is going to be about a corrupt 2020 election in many people's minds. It's going to be about the insurrection at the Capitol. How the impeachment goes is obviously going to matter. I don't think there's any doubt that there's going to be Republicans voting to convict him, at least a handful. Ones that don't may argue simply that he's an ex-president, so you can't do it. That's not exactly a stunning defense of anyone. (laughs) And I do think We saw pretty quickly, and this is true of all lame docs, but I think it's particularly pronounced with Trump, how easily people can abandon you once you're not going to be there, right? And you just a forgotten memory in Washington and and the moving on of the interest from Trump relatively quickly because of the insurrection probably accelerated this. My guess is that, you know, where we were standing on December 15th when we were finishing up this piece, or December 10th, since then, I would say that the, the public sphere politics has turned seriously against Trump. It's all percentages, but I think against him is having a political future. And to the degree that the man is tied to the movement, that's probably bad for Trumpism too. Now, of course, that's another unknown, but I think the possibilities here, if you had asked me a a month ago, will the business conservatives retake the Republican Party? I would have been like, I don't know. And now I would say there's a higher probability than there was. I just think that lame duck has turned out to be terrible for the ex-president. That's sort of the story on the Trump side. But then, of course, there's the Biden side of y'all's analysis as well. So I guess as we start to wrap up, what have y'all made so far of, you know, the slate of executive orders? How much does that sort of stay in keeping with y'all's vision of what a Biden presidency would look like post-Trump? How much does it resemble Trump? How much does it seem to be a deviation from it? I think that we, it was, we did nice. We did pretty well, right? I mean, <laughs> he came out, he, he did executive orders, he, he floated a budget for the coronavirus stimulus bill that hasn't received any action right now. Congress is stalling on his nominees. Those things outside of his executive authority are going the way Congress goes about it now and, and probably to an nth degree. But the ways that he was able to take action, he took advantage of and in a way that re- directly repudiated what came before him. I mean, literally reversing policy, literally joining things that Trump took them out of that he was that we were previously a part of domestically and abroad. It was full repudiation by executive order. So not only did the trend of executive actions continue, but it was also 
in direct contrast to the president that came before him. But I do want to go back to a previous point about the business conservatives versus the Trump conservatives. And where I I really am going to pay attention, because I don't know about this yet, is that the fact that this is a Trump Republican Congress. So the fact that the public has moved on in a way has not trickled down at all into the members of Congress that were elected under his watch and likely because of his watch. So like 43%-ish of the House Republicans have only been around for four years. They only know Trumpism. A lot of them elected because of Trumpism. In the Senate, it's up to 25. With Portman leaving, it's going to be 26. So that is a Trump-era Congress, especially on the Republican side. So if the public moves away from them, they will do it faster than what happens of replacement. So we're likely to see a more Trump-supportive Congress on the Republican side than we ever will see in the public. And then it will then trickle into the representatives that we have here. So it's a lagging indicator of the public sentiment, as it always is. But this is going to be a certain one where we've seen really public figures from QAnon supporters to, to Holly and Cruz, all of them are, despite the public sentiment turning on Trump, which I think it has pretty strongly, they're loud and they're, they're vocal and they're there and they have a vote just like every other member of Congress, too. So that I don't, I'm not as confident as, as it just shifting and being a conservative business, traditional Republican taking back over, especially within Congress. If you're Joe Biden and you can't get your approval rating up to sort of highs for the modern era right now, you're not doing something, you're doing something really <laughs> bad because this is the simplest job ever right now is that you can be absolutely disruptive, couched in being absolutely conventional and boring. And that's about as great a situation as any president can ask for. I'm just going to go, you know, sit in the Oval Office and behave in sort of some minimally normal way in the mold of President Obama. And all of a sudden, my ratings are going to skyrocket. I think one thing that we saw, you know, last week that I think surprised a lot of people is that the rollout of Biden's COVID plan seemed like comprehensive and sort of helping itself. It was not sort of slapdash. It was not sort of rhetorically all over the place. It was not sort of disorganized. Instead, he gathered a bunch of interests together, got them to back a plan, and he presented it to Congress, and he's going to press them for it when the time comes. And that, that sort of normalcy of the policy process, where the, you know, we have president-centric policymaking, is sort of shocking right now, but again, totally conventional. And I think you'll see. I do think that Biden has, I don't know, ex-ante, if I would have told you Joe Biden will make a good president, but he certainly has the absolute great situation right now. And if Biden can implement a series of COVID policies that bring the public health crisis to a close this calendar year in sort of an orderly fashion, that alone combined with governing sort of as, you know, I'm boring and I'm somewhere between Obama and Bush 43 and Clinton and Reagan. You may not love me, but you're not scared of me. China presidency, he's going to do quite well politically. Again, who knows on the policy front, but the recipe for a politically successful presidency right now are pretty easy. Presidents love crises. A lot of times they backfire on them. A lot of wars have backfired. But the actual nature of a crisis is exactly what an executive wants, because they can go in there and solve a problem. And that's an opportunity that sort of Trump missed, I think, and dumped on Biden. And now Biden has a chance to do it, too. You know, he's set up right now as well as you can. You got the ex-president leaving with like a you know 32 percent approval rating. And you've got a crisis coming in that knock on wood with any luck. We're sort of over the crest anyway. And that's a good recipe for political success. And Matt, just a final follow-up. So, I mean, we've talked about how each president could come in and do executive orders to reverse or undo what the predecessor has done. When you guys look back in four years about how Biden has done, will it be what has he actually been able to get through Congress legislatively that will affect his legacy and how people view his legacy? More so than the executive orders, because if, you know, a Republican wins in 2024, they can just undo all that yes. stuff. I mean, that's my bottom line, is that 
for all the moaning we hear, and I'm obviously a huge supporter of Congress. I, I worked in the legislative branch. You're not getting any sort of durability in your policies through executive orders. It's not going to happen. If you want to make a durable policy change, you got to get it done legislatively. Because once you do that, then reversing it becomes really tough, as we saw with Obamacare and the repeal attempt in 2017. And so to me, signing executive orders is the hallmark of a failed president who didn't have the influence to get it done in Congress. It doesn't mean that presidents don't take that route. And certainly in a polarized age, it's a lot harder if you don't, you know, yeah. if you can't go through a party method. But certainly having to sign a bunch of executive orders to, you know, get halfway to your goals that can be reversed, that to me is a signal that you didn't have the influence to get it done in Congress and a more powerful president might have been able to. Yeah, well, maybe if you guys can write an essay for us four years later, we can kind of see how you did in terms of your predictions. We'll, we'll, and then we'll have you back on the podcast at that point. <laughs> That's like 49 years from now. <laughs> <laughs> COVID years, yeah. Yes. Right, yeah. Hopefully it's very different four years. But anyways, guys, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks Thank for having you. me. If you'd like to read Casey and Matt's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers retain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Ricochet. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.